Good morning, Risen Hope. Um, it is good to be gathered with you, even if it's virtually. Um, it's good to be back here uh, and worshiping with you. Um, let me pray real quick before we dive into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, you are glorious and you are mighty to save. This is a reality and a truth that our hearts were designed to seek and embrace and know that you are God and you are like, unlike every other thing in this universe. You are worthy of our affection. You are worthy of our praise and you are mighty to save. And my prayer right now, Father, is that as we look at the passages that you have for us this morning, that you would open up the word, that you would remove any barriers uh, for me as the person who's drawing these uh, explanations and understandings out of the text, and you would remove any barriers for the listeners, Father God, that, that all of us, myself included, would be edified and encouraged by your word. And I pray that your grace would, would abound to us, Father God. I ask this in the name of Christ Jesus alone. Amen. So Mark 8, uh, verse 34, begins like this, and you're used to this by now, four weeks into this series. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. When Jesus invites us to follow him, he wants us to know the terms of that following. He isn't interested in us being confused or having false conceptions. And so in this passage, he lays out the terms. Truly following Jesus Christ is, is not a recreational activity. It's not a, a cultural idiosyncrasy. It's not something religious we do because our parents did it and we're just following them. To follow Jesus and, and in following Jesus is the difference between life and death. It is a serious thing. And we know that because Jesus makes it crystal clear here when he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul, for what can a man give in return for his soul? To not follow Jesus, he himself says, is to forfeit your soul, to, to lose your soul, to withdraw your claim to your own soul, such that we can never give it, get it back. We can never return it back to us, even if we had the whole world at our disposal. Now, there's an important distinction that needs to be made here, and that's that Jesus isn't referring to losing your soul like you would lose your car keys 
or like you would lose your cell phone or anything like that at all. He's not talking about that at all here. The soul, your soul, my soul, is the very essence of a person's life. In fact, the word life and soul are, are used interchangeably here. They're the same word in the Greek. It is who we really are. It's our being, our essence. And so when Jesus says that refusing to follow him is forfeiting one's soul, he's referring to the purpose for which our souls were designed and created. He's referring to the reason that our souls exist in this world. We were created, you and I were created to know and to enjoy God, our creator. That's why we were made. And to forfeit this purpose is to be forever severed from the singular reason we were created, the main reason we were created. And Jesus says here that there's literally nothing you can do to pay to get it back. You cannot pay or leverage anything to give it back. If you were to gain the entire world in this life, you would be unable to use that to recover the purpose of your own soul. And by saying that, Jesus is effectively saying he's holding out his own infinite worth and glory. Following Jesus Christ is more valuable than anything else in this world. Literally everything in this world combined is not anywhere close to the value, the worth of Jesus Christ. Jesus really is that worthy, which is why he states the terms of following him like this. In our souls, your soul, my soul, the souls of seven or so billion people on this planet were made and created to know that worth and know and enjoy his value and his glory as our greatest and most valuable treasure. So to follow Christ is to refuse to forfeit that joy, the joy our souls were made for, even if following Christ cost us everything we have in this world including our very lives. To follow him is to so embrace him, so delight in him that to lose anything or even all things is a very small price to pay in comparison. And that's what this passage in Mark 8 is all about. Jesus understands, Jesus knows who he really is. He's not confused at all about his worth and his glory. And he is inviting us in this passage to embrace that reality. And today, as we continue this series that we've been in for the past few weeks, um, looking at what it means to follow Jesus, what, what it means to give our lives completely to him, uh, I want to take a, a look at another event in the book of Acts. We've done this, uh, Jacob did this two weeks back, and David did this last week, and we're going to do it again here. And this event in the book of Acts focuses on two men who refuse to forfeit the same joy that Jesus is talking about here. They refuse to let Jesus go, even when it costs them their freedom, even when it costs them their comfort and their health, and even when it could potentially cost them their very lives. And so if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, please take it and turn with me to uh, Acts 16, verse 16. 
would love to read this whole chapter. Cannot, because we simply do not have the time. Um, your kids, if you have kids, uh, there's a video that was sent out yesterday by Rachel um, where I actually got an opportunity and, and was honored for it to read through this story in a kid's book. And so uh, if they haven't read it yet or if they hadn't heard the, seen the video yet, I would, I would challenge you to, to, to plug them into it so they can see it. They got a sneak peek yesterday of this text. So let, while you turn there, Acts 16, 16, let me set the table for you. This is Paul's second missionary journey. So his second time going out into the world to spread the gospel. He's traveling here with a group of men that includes Silas, which is a close companion of his, and uh, even the author of the book of Acts, Luke, is with him. Luke is a physician who has accompanied uh, Paul on this journey. And now they are pushing in the second missionary journey beyond the area that he had first come to in his first journey, uh, and planted churches in Asia Minor. And God has very decisively, if you read this chapter, you can see this, guided them to Macedonia. So they're in Asia Minor. They're going west, northwest, into northern Greece, which is called, which was called in ancient times Macedonia. One of the leading cities of Macedonia was the city of Philippi. And so upon arriving at Philippi, these men go to a place of prayer just outside the city, and they begin telling the, the gospel to a group of women who have gathered there. And Luke tells us that God, in his providence, opens the heart of one of the women there. Her name is Lydia, and she receives the gospel. Her and her whole household are baptized, and she is so moved by the reality of Jesus and by the gospel that she invites this group of men, these missionaries, to come and stay with her in her house. They reluctantly agree, but uh, it says they pr uh, she prevailed on them. And this is the birth of the Philippian church. So you got a, a, a letter in your Bible that's called the, the, the Epistle to the Philippians. And that's the church that's being born right here in Lydia's house. This is how the first church in Philippi comes into existence. And everything at this point in the chapter seems to be going well for Paul and Silas and for their ministry there until we get to verse 16. When, as they continue to proclaim the gospel at this place of prayer, something goes sideways, something happens here. So Luke tells us, verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So on their way to this place of prayer again, they've been coming here regularly and, and conducting ministry. Luke tells us that they were met by the slave girl who had a spirit of divination, which means that, that the spirit allowed her to, to supernaturally divine or discern things. Maybe she could determine facts about people. Maybe she could even piece together potentialities that were in a vague way the future. All of this, though, happened through the spirit of divination, a, a demonic evil spirit that was that she was uh, controlled by, governed by. This girl was apparently very good at her job because Luke says that she brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. It's, 
hard to imagine her being bad at that and still being able to bring in uh, much gain. So this fact about her ability to do this fortune-telling is validated further as the story continues because she is apparently following Paul and these others as they move through the city, and she is crying out that these men are servants of the Most High God. This is in a part of Macedonia where they would have had many gods. So what this means is that their God, this group of men's God, is the greatest and highest of all gods. And by definition, that would mean that he is the creator and sustainer of all things. She also says that they are proclaiming the way of salvation, how it is one can be saved. This is remarkable because despite the spirit that she has being evil, it is rightly assessing Paul and the other men with him and rightly assessing the God that they serve. This spirit knows who they are and knows what they are doing, which is very ironic given what is about to take place. Apparently, this girl's incessant crying uh, begins to disrupt Paul's work, and so Paul casts out this spirit by the very same name that he's been proclaiming, Jesus. And if there was, for the crowds that are watching them, any uncertainty about whether or not these men who are preaching Jesus Christ and the gospel, whether or not they are actually servants of the Most High God, as this girl's already said that they are, that uncertainty should be gone at this point with what Paul does by the name of Jesus Christ casting out this spirit. The logical and rational response would be to find out who this Jesus is they're talking about. Be to find out what is the way of salvation if you were able to do this. But the rational and logical response doesn't happen. Listen to Luke as he picks up in verse 19. It says, When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely, having received this order, He put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So the rational response that should happen here because of what Paul has just done with this spirit doesn't happen because these men are not thinking rationally. They may have enslaved this poor girl for their own purposes of gain, but they are the ones who are truly enslaved. Their exploitation of this afflicted girl has now come to a sudden and dramatic end, and now their hope for gain is all dried up. It's gone. At the name of Jesus Christ, their lives have completely changed. Their hopes for gain are gone. And instead of pleading with Paul to hear the truth, 
instead of, instead of pleading with Paul and Silas to find out what salvation is, they respond with rage. They seize Paul and Silas. They drag them, Luke says, before the rulers in the marketplace. And Now, we need to think about what has happened here because this is, this is an opportunity for self-reflection. These men loved money so much, even at the cost of, of taking the freedom of others, enslaving this poor girl, that when the flow of money stopped, their response was anger. And the reason they don't stop and, and think about how it could be that this man, Paul, cast out this spirit isn't because the evidence isn't compelling. The evidence is very compelling. It's because the affections and the desires of these men are enslaved to a false god. And so when their God, money, the love of money, is subdued by the one true God, they don't respond in worship, they don't respond in, in reverence or humility, they respond in wrath and anger. And they drag Paul and Silas to the magistrates and begin to accuse them. And this incites the crowd to attack Paul and Silas. And so without a hearing or without a trial, without any kind of due process, which was afforded to them in the law, without that, the magistrates here tear off their clothes and they order them to be beaten with rods. This was a a typical Roman punishment where these narrow shafts of, of elm wood would be used by a group to beat a criminal. And it would obviously leave welts and bruises, uh, but sometimes it would even break a person's skin. And it was obviously designed to be physically painful. That's one of the reasons why they did that. Um, But it was also done in public. And if their clothes have been removed, you can imagine that this was humiliating for them. So there was this shame and there was the pain of the physical punishment and being beaten with rods is something that Paul says happened to him three times in 2 Corinthians. In addition to being scourged, in addition to being stoned, in addition to being beaten many times. So we, we might want to wonder what it was that his body looked like after years of missionary service. Paul endured more physical suffering for the name of Jesus than most of us in our Western American sensibilities, can even conceive in our minds. Verse 23 says here that in this incident, they inflicted many blows upon them. And then they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them safely, which meant you need to put them in the deepest, darkest possible inner prison that you have. And you need to put them in stocks. Anchor them to the ground so that they don't go anywhere. Now, we dare not pass over this text and just try to sterilize it to make it more comfortable and palatable for us. These men, Paul and Silas, physically speaking, are a mess. They have been brutally beaten. We find out later that their wounds were so bad that they needed to be cleaned with water, which indicates that the rods didn't just leave a mark on the skin, but tore it open. And so these are deep wounds, and they are sitting here without clothing, in the dark, in this dark, damp, um, probably rat-infested prison, and their legs are anchored to this rigid, massive beam of wood 
on the ground so that they are unable to move, they are unable to uh, tend to their wounds, they're unable to even to rest. What I want to do here is I want to pause and just think about this, just picture them in your minds. What would we do in this situation? How would we respond if our comfort and our health and our freedom were stripped completely away because we have been proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been communicating the good news about how Jesus can save sinners. What would our response be? What should our response be? Well, how do they respond? Verse 25 tells us their response. It says, amazingly, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. That's their response. Singing hymns at midnight. They respond with prayer and singing to God. They're not whining, which is probably what I would be doing. They're not complaining. They're not murmuring over this brutal injustice they've just experienced. No, they are singing to God. They're singing to Him. Now, how in the world, like when we get to this text, how in the world does this happen? What is driving this in them, that in the middle of pain, in the middle of suffering, in the middle of uncertainty, that they would respond by singing to their God? How is that even possible? And this is the question that Luke wants us to ask. Like, when the Holy Spirit was guiding Luke to record these events, Luke wants us, the Holy Spirit wants us to look at this and ask, how do these men sing in the middle of all this? How do they sing hymns to God? What is it that they have in them that allows them to respond to pain and suffering with hymns, with singing? And another question is, how, how does this fit into God's gracious mercy and providence? I mean, what purpose could he possibly have in things going so horribly wrong? Well, Luke's going to answer both of those questions as the story continues in verse 25. Again, he says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So let's go there. Paul and Silas are singing at midnight, in stocks, in the darkness, and the prisoners all around them. They were put in the inner prison. <laughs> so they have prisoners all around them. Those prisoners are listening. They're listening. 
It's not an inconsequential fact that Luke list, uh, mentions here because when, when the earthquake hammers the very foundation of this prison, opening every door, unfastening every lock and bond, these men, the prisoners, stay put. They don't leave. And the only reason for them to have stayed in their cells and not leave is because they had been listening to Paul and Silas sing. These two men in the inner prison, wrongly accused, then beaten to a pulp, and now locked into stocks, have been singing to their God. That's not normal. (laughs) That's very abnormal. These men have something the rest of the world does not have. And so when an earthquake shakes this prison to the core, these prisoners, having heard the singing from these two men, do not move a muscle. They stay put because they know the earthquake is not a coincidence. And the jailer is going to figure that out too as he approaches. He wakes up suddenly, according to Luke. He sees the doors open. He thinks they've all escaped. And so he's going to take his sword. He's going to end his life because that's, well, this was his responsibility to keep the prisoners and he could be killed for, for, for not doing it. Paul hears him do this and stops him. He stops him from taking his own life. Why? Why do that? Think about this. Paul, I mean, this earthquake wasn't an accident. They're singing to God and God says, I'm going to join the chorus and knock this prison apart. And they could have just said, peace out. Got up and walked away, totally vindicated after the horrific treatment they had endured by the Philippian rulers. And they could have just let the jailer take his own life and been completely vindicated. But Paul doesn't. He stops him. Paul doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. He doesn't, they could lock him back up again. He could be executed in the morning. Why would he dare to risk that here? And the, the reason, the answer of why he would dare to risk that is, is, is the same reason he sings at midnight. Paul and Silas have a, a joy that is indomitable. They have a joy that is invincible because it isn't anchored to, it isn't rooted in their comfort. It isn't rooted in their health. It it isn't even anchored in whether they live or die. Their comfort is, or their, their joy is rooted in one thing, Christ Jesus. Paul knows Jesus He knows his glory, his worth, his beauty. He knows what he did for him on the cross. And in that, he sees a joy worth dying for. Especially if dying is a means for others to find that same joy. And that's exactly what happens in verse 32. Someone finds this joy. It says, And they spoke, Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him, to the jailer, and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before him. And he, the jailer, 
rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So still in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas are with the jailer. They share the gospel with him and his family, and they believe. They all believe. The very one who threw this bloodied Paul into prison and locked him up in stocks, that man is now a believer. And Luke tells us that he and his whole household were, were baptized. So you have this amazing scene, this picture of of this man taking Paul and Silas and washing their bloody wounds that they received for proclaiming the gospel. And then it's because of their proclamation to the gospel that this jailer and his entire household are all baptized by Paul and Silas. And that is a a signifying washing away of their sins, eternal wounds. And that cleansing, the cleansing that the, the jailer experiences and his, his household experiences comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. The jailer in this story does not deserve Jesus. He does not deserve the joy of knowing Christ. He's done nothing to warrant forgiveness of his sins. But here's the thing. Jesus has done something for that forgiveness. And that something is the cross where God the Father placed the sin of the jailer, all of it, and everyone's sin who would believe in him on his own precious, glorious son. And then he crushed that sin until it didn't exist anymore, until it was forgotten forever and completely forgiven. And so the jailer would never forfeit his soul, but he would experience now, having received Christ, the very joy that his soul was made to know and embrace. That's what we see here in verse 34. This word rejoiced, agaliao in the Greek. It's interesting because you don't see this word in any secular Greek writers. It only shows up in the New Testament. And the, the definition of this word is to exalt or rejoice greatly. The root of the word is the word leap or jump. So you can see the expressiveness of the jailer in this moment, reflecting on that the fact that he has faith in God and that he's received this Jesus. This is a profound joy. And it's the very purpose for which our souls were made. And it's precisely why Paul and Silas could sing at midnight, even in the middle of great suffering. And seeing that joy, seeing the results of that joy, is what brought the jailer to repentance. Years later, Paul would would write the church at Philippi, which likely included Lydia and the jailer and their households and the families that had joined them and the individuals who'd come to faith in that city. And he'd write a letter about where his joy, same joy that drove him to sing in the middle of the Philippian prison, where that joy came from. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 8. Listen to what he says here. Whatever gain I had, Paul says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count 
everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This is what Jesus is talking about in Mark 8. This is what it means to follow him. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The worth of knowing Christ Jesus surpasses every other single joy in this world and all of those joys combined. It is the very purpose for which our souls were made, to know him, to know Christ. And when it is experienced by a person through receiving and trusting in Jesus and receiving his work for us on the cross, when that happens, this joy bubbles up inside of us and it becomes a witness for other people. It becomes a picture of the supremacy of Christ Jesus in our lives. It becomes a picture of just how valuable Jesus is to us. And it frees us up, if I'm honest with you, it frees us up when we see Jesus for who he really is, not to cling so tightly to our lives in this world. It is, it is a kind of joy that when you taste it, and all of us who have received Christ have tasted it in some way, shape, or form, but when you taste it, when you have your fill of it, it is the kind of joy that is so radically powerful that when it grips you, when you see Jesus for who he really is and all that he's done for us on the cross, we recognize with Paul, with Silas, that there is literally nothing in this world that is worth holding on compared to the treasure that is Christ Jesus. And we realize that we can even sing at midnight when everything in our lives is falling ar apart around us and we have all the good that we had in our lives stripped away, we can still sing because our joy isn't rooted in what we have or even who we have with us in this world. Our joy is rooted in Christ. It's rooted in Jesus. And this joy is a joy so powerful that it is worth living every second of our lives for. And it is a joy worth dying for, if necessary. And this is precisely what Jesus is talking about when he turns to you and turns to me and says, follow me, follow me. This is what he is inviting us into, to know his worth, his beauty, his glory, to embrace it such that no matter the risk, no matter the cost incurred, no matter the loss we might sustain, our joy will always remain because it's rooted in Jesus Christ. We've seen something worth dying for. And so as we as individuals and families scattered across the greater Seattle area, in this next song, as we participate in the Lord's Supper, and as we, we consider what it is that Christ Jesus did on the cross, represented by the bread and the, the cup, my request for you is that you plead with God, along with me, 
that this joy, this joy that we see in Acts 16, would not be for us just a nice story. Would not be for us a theoretical joy. Would not even be for us just a nice thing to have, but it's not necessary. But would be for us our heart's greatest passion, the greatest pursuit of our life, to experience it in ever-increasing in degrees of, of joy and gladness in Christ, to know and to enjoy Him in all of His infinite glories, which we can see in His book and experience and taste in His scriptures, and to make Jesus the source and the root of how we live our lives in this world. That, that that's what we're called to in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And this is how we, you and I, when midnight comes into our lives, when things that we love are taken away from us, can live in such a way that we show that Jesus is our greatest treasure. That our treasure is not caught up in the things that, that we have in this world, though we love them, though we can appreciate and enjoy them, but our joy is caught up in one reality, and that is Christ. That's how they were able to sing at midnight. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into. So let's ask God for that in the next few moments. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, so simple were the words of Jesus but they were so massive. Follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And the embodiment of that invitation, that command, is not just to follow him around to a location that we're going to love more than him, but is to follow him because we love him more than anything. And my prayer, Father, is that by your Holy Spirit, as we worship in this next song, as we think about who you are and what you've done, as we participate in the Lord's Supper, that you would so kindle in our hearts the kind of invincible, indomitable joy that can lead all of us to sing at midnight. I ask this in the name of Christ Jesus alone. Amen.